And we come to you because you are a God who cannot change, and you cannot change because you cannot be improved upon. You cannot lie because you are true, and so your word is always good. It is always true. And, and you do always come through, even, even though it might not be in ways that we want or desire or at times even demand, but we can know that you are a God who always comes through for our good at, at just the right time. We know that at just the right time you sent Christ to die and to be the propitiation for our sins. And so uh, may we have a great trust and confidence in you. Lord, we want to pray uh, for the Brennans today as they continue to go about the, the work of figuring out what their uh, next steps will be, having not had their visas re renewed. Lord, we thank you for the work that's been done. Uh, for a full third of the New Testament that's been translated and a tenth of the Old Testament that's been translated. Father, we pray that there would be a, uh, th that the gospel would go forth from that, that people would believe, that they would uh, hear the gospel and trust Jesus and his life and death to be the, the grounds of the forgiveness of our sins. Father, as we turn to your word, we need, um, we need your help. We need your, your help in understanding your word, in applying your word. I certainly need help this morning being clear and, uh, and um, communicating well your word and what we see in these texts, this text. And so, Lord, would you help us with all of that? Would you give us soft hearts that are willing to obey and, and sharp minds that can see and understand what you're trying to teach us? And uh, we ask all of that in Jesus' name. Amen. Go ahead and turn with me to the book of uh, John, chapter 15. That's where we will start. If you want to, you can go ahead and put a marker or um, some kind of or a finger or whatever in 1 John, chapter 5. We're going to be considering both of these uh, passages today. Let me read to you. Uh, well, let me tell you a couple things as you turn there. First, uh, we mentioned last week, I'll mention again this week, um, if, if God lays it on your heart to contribute to the Benevolence uh, Fund uh, above your normal giving, we would appreciate that. We've had a lot of need uh, recently, and so we pretty much have almost nothing left to spend in benevolence, uh, and there's been a lot of needs. We've been able to provide some great help for people, but if you are willing and able to, uh, to contribute to that so that we can continue helping people who need a little financial assistance, we would appreciate it. And then with the way that uh, Christmas and Christmas Eve and all those things are falling this year, uh, next Sunday, the 24th, or not next Sunday, yes, next Sunday, let me rephrase that, next Sunday the 17th is going to kind of be our, our big uh, Christmas celebration. We'll have food and drinks, and, uh, and I would encourage you, probably some coffee, orange juice, things like that, I would encourage you to, uh, to invite, bring somebody with you. It's going to be kind of our main Christmas Sunday, and then of course Christmas Eve we will have that one family-style 1030 service and then a candlelight service in the evening. With that, let me read to you John chapter 15. Um, I think I'm going to go ahead and read starting in verse 1 and go through 11. Our, our focus today is going to be verses 9 through 11, uh, but there's an, a lot of overlap last week, and so I want to read the verses that we covered again last week. Here Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away, and every branch that does bear fruit, he prunes, that it may bear more fruit. 
Already you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away like a branch and withers. And the branches are gathered, thrown into the fire, and burned. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples." And now, the the verses we'll look at today. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. As we sang this morning, uh, I was kind of impressed by uh, the first song that we sang. Now, first off, I was impressed by the kids as they came up here and sang and danced because I think one thing is pretty evident, and that's most of us can't even sing and clap simultaneously, let alone all the things that, that they were able to do. But I was impressed by the words that we sang, Yes, Lord, yes, Lord. Now, that might seem simple, and in reality, it's not. I read um, a devotional by Paul Tripp some years ago called, uh, I think it's just called Let Us Adore Him. And one of the chapters in this, this Christmas devotional really struck me. And he, he was talking about the, the divine willingness of Jesus. And the reality of, of Jesus' willingness is that it's contrasted so much with our kind of sinful unwillingness. Now, as Jennifer was talking in the video today, she said something about how they were going to talk about how Jesus is two natures, you know, truly God and truly man, and how that was hard for kids to understand. And I thought, that's hard for me to understand. Like, that's not just a kid reality. That's hard for all of us to understand. Add to that the fact that God exists eternally in three persons who are only one God, and now, like, we're all out, right? None of us can fully comprehend that. The best way to understand some of this, I heard some time ago, was one, two, three, right? One God, three in three persons, but when we talk about Jesus, he had two natures, that he was fully or truly divine and truly man. And because that's outside of the bounds of my understanding, and I can't comprehend all of that, uh, we're going to have to imagine a conversation. Now, I don't know if, uh, I think God and Jesus talk. Scripture tells us that Jesus intercedes for us. Uh, I think they communicate in many ways. We also know from Romans that the Spirit can communicate for us in words too, beyond, uh, beyond words, like in, in groanings too deep to understand. And so th- I don't fully understand how the Trinity communicates, but, but for the sake of showing this idea of Jesus Uh, divine willingness. Let's just imagine from eternity past, there's a conversation between God the Father and God the Son. And the Son, uh, the, the Father comes to Jesus and he says, Son, I have a plan. We, in fact, you are going to create a world and you're going to put people in it. 
and they're going to defy us. They're going to break our rules. They're going to reject us. They're going to hate us. But I'm going to send you to become one of them. You're going to leave your position as supreme ruler, king of heaven, creator of heaven and earth, and you're going to go and you're going to be born in a stable. And Jesus says yes. And not only are you going to be born in a stable, you're going to be born to a family that's probably ostracized because your mom, miraculously, she's going to be a virgin. And nobody's going to believe their story. And Jesus says, okay. And though you're going to be sinless, you're going to live in a world under the effects of sin. And you're going to be rejected and hated. Arrested. Tried falsely. Accused falsely. Convicted falsely. And then beaten. And Jesus says, yes. And then you're going to be crucified and killed. But that's not the worst part, Jesus. The worst part is that in that crucifixion, you are going to bear the full measure of my wrath so that you might pay for their sin and acquire their forgiveness for them. And he says, yes, Lord. And then we're going to redeem out of those sinners a group of people to be a bride for you. And he says, yes, Lord. Now, which one of us would say yes to that? Like, like what's, what's in us is just this, this sinful tendency to be like, no, let me prove it to you, okay? Want to help me move? <laughs> no. Thank you. Appreciate it. Or, or the guy with the sign on a street corner. I'm not saying you should give every guy a sign on the street corner money. There's reasons to say no, right? God says no sometimes. I heard years ago, um, uh, uh, kind of along these lines, I heard somebody say, your default answer to your children should be yes. Guess what my first thought was? No. <laughs> and then I started thinking about it, and the person clarified, look, I'm not telling you you should always say yes to your kids. I'm simply telling you that uh, you should say yes unless you have a reason to say no. Well, it got me thinking, and you know what I saw after that was how much I said no for no reason. It's just no was my automatic answer. And so sometimes I'd be like, kids would ask me a question, I'd be like, no. Wait a minute. Yeah. We should not underestimate the power of the words, yes, Lord. Because in Jesus, everything was yes, Lord. And for us, there kind of comes this, this sinful unwillingness, this, this idea of no. And that's going to play a little bit into our passage today. Because... Um, I think first service, you know, there's a saying uh, amongst us preachers that a mist in the pulpit is a fog in the pew. I think I may have left first service a little foggy um, because I, I didn't necessarily structure 
uh, this message very well. And so I'm going to try and fix that here. But the reality is, Jesus is talking about, in verse 11, how to have joy. And we saw last week that joy is simply happiness. He wants us to know how to be happy. And, and interestingly, the, the two places that today's message is going to lead us to uh, have to do with this. The, the first area is, is in obedience. And it's going to seem a little weird at first, like obedience is, is how to remain in the Father's love, how to have joy in God's love. And then the second is in God's people. But let's look at our text today and first see how joy comes through obedience. In, in verse 9, uh, we're gonna f- ultimately what we're talking about is, is having joy in God's love. In verse 9, Jesus says, As the Father has loved me, this word for as means in the same manner or in the same way. In the same way the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. And then Jesus says, abide in my love. Now, this is really important because what what might be natural for us is to to understand that, that love, first and foremost, from God doesn't come because of anything in us. God doesn't love you because you're so lovely, or me. That's probably more obvious than some of you, but um, God doesn't look at us and say, you're so amazing that I love you. No, he loves us because it's in his character to love. Initially, this is going to sound, sound bad, because none of us want to be loved in spite of, right? Like, none of us want to be loved anyways but it's kind of the reality uh husbands i'm going to pick on you guys a lot today but we'll just we'll be all right with that now here's what i want you to do i I want you to 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 you know wait until there's this nice moment between you and your wife and tell her well i love you anyways i'll see you in heaven guys (laughs) right like which one of us is surviving that None of us is going to survive that. We don't want to be loved anyways. And yet, the reality is that what's in us is sin. What's in us is an inclination to disobedience. What's in us is is a desire to be our own gods and to reject God. But God loved us not because of who we are. He doesn't love us because of anything in us. He loves us because of who he is. And ultimately, this is really good news. Let me show you this first and then explain why it's good news. In John 3.16, it says that God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God didn't wait for us to clean ourselves up. No, he sent his son to save the people who were going to kill him. The centurion uh, who's at the cross of Christ is the first person in the New Testament to express faith. At least after his death. Romans 5.8, God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. God sent his son to die for us, to pay the, the punishment of our sins while we were still sinners. God loves us because of who He is and not because of any merit in us. Not because we earned it, not because we deserved it. And let me tell you why this is really, really good news. It's good news because if you can't earn His love, you can't unearn His love. 
If he loves us because of something in him, that's unchangeable. But if he loves us because of something in us, what happens when we prove faithless or sinful? Does he remove his love? No, and this is where we see something really important in the formula of, of Jesus. He says, as the Father has loved me, so I have loved you. This is just a statement of fact. It's the reality of things. God loves the Son, and the Son loves us. Therefore, God loves us. Then he says, remain in my love. Notice he doesn't say keep my love or earn my love. He says remain in my love. Now, any of us who have kids, we know, I see Caleb and Kinsey, you guys are here with your sweet daughter and she's gorgeous and you know why they're born like that? Because they turn into teenagers. (laughs) Right? If you got them as teenagers... It might be a little different story. We might be like, I'm out, you know, I'm going to tap out. No, but we get them as babies and they're beautiful and wonderful and we love them. And then they start showing tendencies of, of disobedience, right? And let me ask you when, you, when your kids are disobedient, do you stop loving them? Of course not. But in their disobedience, does the nature of the relationship change? What happens to that divine yes in the face of disobedience? It it might become no. See, the reality is, if we want to live in the full blessing of our parents, especially if you're still living in your parents' home, the, the younger people in the room, you want to live in the full blessing of your parents, you have to live within the boundaries of their blessing. And when you step outside of those boundaries, the blessing is removed, not because they have stopped loving you, but because you did not abide in their love. Unless I wear the kids out in the room, let me remind you guys that of all the commandments, the the command to honor your father and mother, as Paul reminds us in Ephesians, and as we see when the commands are given, it's the only one that comes with a promise. And the promise is that it may go well with you. And so when when those bad attitudes or an unwillingness to obey arises in you and you step outside of your parents' blessing and the, the relationship gets rocky and you're tempted to blame them. Now, I'm not saying parents are perfect. We get it wrong sometimes for sure. But there's a promise for blessing when it comes to obedience, both in relationships to our parents and to our Heavenly Father. And so Christ does not remove his love when we fail to obey. We simply cease to be in the the place where his blessings flow. And so oftentimes what happens in our lives is we we don't obey. We we reject his rules or or his commands, both the positive ones and the negatives, the to-do and the don't-do. And then we start wondering, why isn't God blessing me? And the question in that moment is often, usually what we ask is, where did God go? And the reality is, it's not Him that moved. It was us. And see, God's rules, as we read in 1 John last week, were, they're not burdensome. He says, here is the boundaries of my blessing. Everything outside of this is dangerous. 
I'm going to try and cut some other stuff. So I'm going to put this one into to, to this service. Uh, everybody, you all seen Jurassic Park, the first one? If you haven't seen Jurassic Park, go watch Jurassic Park. The best parenting movie you will ever see. I, I did not misspeak there. Here's what I mean. Kids, they're velociraptors. <laughs> right? You watch Jurassic Park and the velociraptors are in their cage and they got a big game hunter and he's like, they're smart. They go around systematically testing the fences. Ah, that's what our kids do, right? They go around systematically testing the boundaries. And what happens when the velociraptors found a way out of the cage? Bad things, right? They get outside of the boundaries and bad things happen for everybody, you know why our kids are velociraptors? Because we are. We just go around systematically testing the boundaries of God's goodness, of, of what He says is safe for us, of where there's protection, and, by the way, provision. And then we, we bust our way out, and things go badly, and we go, well, where's my provision and protection? As though somehow it was God who moved. No, Jesus never moves. As the Father has loved Him, so He has loved us. And it's our responsibility to abide, to remain, to stay in that blessing. How do we do that? Verse 10, if you keep My commandments, you will abide in My love. In other words, if you do what I say, you'll stay where I bless. Just as I have kept My Father's commandments and abide in His love. The, the result of that obedience can't help but to be joy. In verse 11, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. One commentator, Don Carson, said this. I think it's super helpful in understanding the connection. Because if we, if we, if we consider the context, Jesus is saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches, stay connected to me, receive from me, and you will produce fruit. That fruit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control. It's the fruit of obedience. It's the fruit of evangelism. It's the fruit of fellowship. We looked at a whole bunch of ways that fruit comes out last week. But listen to what Carson says. He says, love is the relationship that unites the disciples to Christ as branches are united to a vine. Two results stem from this relationship obedience and joy obedience marks the cause of their fruitfulness you want to live a fruitful life in christ it must be a life that's marked by obedience obedience marks the cause of their fruitfulness and joy is its result joy logically follows when the disciples realize that the life of christ is in them or when the life of christ in them is bringing fruit something that they could never produce on their own strength and I think these words of Jesus here about obedience and, being, and remaining in uh, God's love, I think they, they became really uh, significant for the disciples. Not just John, though John seems to talk about this at length, but we see it in Peter as well. And, and it shouldn't be a surprise to us because it seems to have been on repeat. It seems to have been on Jesus' mind. See, remember the context of this passage is it's the night before Jesus' arrest, or it's really as we would think of it, it's the night of his betrayal. He's about to be betrayed, arrested, tried, beaten, 
crucified. And he's got this last night with his disciples. And, and they're a bunch of knuckleheads, which is super encouraging to me. But he's like, I got one night and, and I'm gonna, I, 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 this, this, is, this is my last deposit. And, and listen to the things he says. Uh, John chapter 14, verse 21. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Verses 23 and 24, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words, and the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. John 15, 10, If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. John 15, 14, You are my friends, if you do what I command you. All of these uh, verses, by the way, present for us uh, some conditional clauses, like, like these if-then ideas. But you know what's really interesting about these if-then ideas is it doesn't go like this. It's not, if you obey me, then I will forgive you. That's never presented to us in here. It's also not presented to us that if you obey me, then I will love you. The if-then conditions here go like this. If you love me, then you will obey me with the result that you abide in my Father's love. The condition of obedient is obedience. The result, or the condition is love, rather. The result is obedience. We cannot claim to love God if we are not obeying God. And this takes us, if you've got a finger there, to 1 John chapter 5. Because uh, Jesus gives these instructions that we read in John 15 the night before his death. But, uh, but later, much, much later in John's life, he writes the book of 1 John. In fact, this, the book of 1 John is probably written somewhere around 60 years after John, the events of John 15. So 60 years later, John is still writing about uh, this, this night and Jesus' teaching. And he says in 1 John 5, verses 1-5, through 5, Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God. And everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. By this we know that we love the children of God, when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. For everyone who has been born of God overcomes the world, and this is the victory that has overcome the world, our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world except the one who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The context here in John chapter 5 is that John is telling us how to be overcomers. How to overcome the world. How to overcome sin. How to overcome death. How to o- overcome the consequences of, uh, of all of our disobedience. And I think what he gives us is kind of four steps, if you will, towards being an overcomer. And some of these are going to be a little out of order compared to what we're normally used to. Step one is you must be born again. Step one is you must be born again. Well, Logan, the verse says everyone who believes. Isn't that step one? No, it's not. Because it says everyone who believes has been born again. 
John is indicating for us that before one believes, they are born again. Jesus tells the same thing to Nicodemus in John chapter 3, that if anyone wants to see the kingdom, he must be born again. And I don't think Jesus uses this, uh, this picture uh, uh, without good cause. And w- without going into the details of how it all happens, let's just suffice it to say that none of us were consulted about our birth. None of us chose to, to do that. that. That was the result of the actions of some other people. And their actions resulted in our conception and our birth. 1 Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And so first, we must be born again. We must be given spiritual life by the Father. Step two, as John presents this to us, is to believe. That is the only requirement. We're not required to clean up our lives. We're not required to fix ourselves. We're not required to do something to earn God's favor. See, it's not just abiding that's conditional. The entire Christian life is conditional. It's, it's conditioned upon what somebody else has done. Our righteousness isn't because we're righteous, it's because Jesus was righteous. We don't have to die spiritually because we're good enough people, it's because Jesus died for us. He lived our sinless life. He died the death we deserved to die. And, and that the, the proof that, that he did so successfully is vindicated at, at the empty tomb where Jesus is proven to be the one who can offer life. And all that we have to do is simply turn from our sin and trust Jesus. To repent of what we have done and to love Christ. Step three, and this is where things get a little weird, we love the church. We're going we're gonna to come back to this idea, but we're going to start with the idea of obedience. Firstly, the way we abide in, in Jesus' love is through obedience. But step three for John is that we love the church. Notice what he goes on to say. Um, everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves whoever has been born of Him. Those who love God love those who have been born of Him. In other words, the church, uh, believers, the people of Jesus. Now, to illustrate this, I want to kind of pick on husbands again. Here's what I want you guys to do. I want you to go home. I want you to find a picture of your wife. I want you to set it aside. If you don't have a wife, imagine your girlfriend. If you don't have a girlfriend, imagine the girl you want to be your girlfriend. You're going to get a picture. And then... Not, not spontaneously, not, or not like, hey, let's go out to dinner tonight. I want you to plan a time. I want you to ask her out. I want you to pick a place. I want you to go there. She's going to dress up. You're going to dress up. You're going to have an amazing dinner. The conversation is wonderful. Jesus is babysitting your kids, so there's nothing to worry about. You don't even need your cell phone, right? And, and you might dance a little. And then at just the right time, you're going to look deeply into her eyes. You're going to tell her how beautiful she is. But then you're going to take the picture out. 
And you're going to say, this lady, she's kind of ugly. I don't care for her. I'll see you in heaven. (laughs) Right? You're not going to survive this. Nobody survives that. This is what John is getting at. You don't get to say, I love God, but I don't love the people who are made in His image. Now, is the picture as good as your wife? No. I mean, yeah, it, it doesn't talk much. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> that's, that's wrong. I mean, the, the reality is, given the, given the option of a picture of my wife or the presence of my wife, I'm picking her presence every time. The, the image is never going to be as good as, as the original. But, but you can't say you love one and hate the other. And so, John is telling us here that everyone who loves the Father and has been born of Him loves those who are also born of Him. They love the church. They love the people of God, which is what the church is. And then step four, verse two, we obey. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. For this is the love of God that we keep His commandments and His commandments are not burdensome. It's always been this way. And for the sake of time, because first service I went on way too long, I'm going to skip a bunch of verses. But in Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 13, uh, we see that, that God wanted people to obey. 1 Samuel 15, 22, we're told that obedience is better than sacrifice. Uh, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, Solomon tells us the heart of the matter is to obey God and keep his, or fear God and keep his commandments. Uh, Jeremiah 7, the Israel was commanded to obey his voice and he will be their God. The apostles in Acts 5 um, uh, were, were they, they mentioned the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. Romans 15. Um, Paul says that through him, uh, God brought the, the Gentiles to obedience. Hebrews 5.9, that being made perfect, Jesus became the source of eternal salvation to all who believe him. And this is where I think it wasn't just John, the apostle, who this, this night of Jesus' death was significant on, but listen to Peter. Or significant for listen to Peter, First Peter one fourteen. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. First Peter one twenty two. Having purified your souls by obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love. There's that connection of obedience to God and brotherly love again. This had an impact on Peter too. From Deuteronomy, all the way to the New Testament to write as John's about to write Revelation. Obedience has always been required of God's people. And he wants it to come from a pure heart. Because his, his, his commands are not burdensome. Verse, uh, 1 John 5.3 His commands are not burdensome. This is right where we left off in, in Matthew. Come to me all who are weary and heavy laden. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart and you will find rest for your souls. He's not exacting in his commands. He's life-giving in them. He's rest-giving in them. This means that our obedience, it's not to be external, ritualistic, or legalistic. By external, I mean imposed by somebody else. The elders and I, we're not life police. 
We're not going to check your books. We're not going to check your finances. We're not going to ask your employees if you're behaving. Right? We're, it's, it's not going to be external. It's not going to be ritualistic. There's not an exact number of times to pray per day or an exact number of verses to read in your Bible every day or you have to give this much money or anything like that. And it's not going to be legalistic, which means two things. Number one, the way you live that out, unless it's absolutely commanded by God, you can't impose it on anybody else. You might make some extra rules for yourself to protect yourself, but you can't put those rules on other people. And the other side of that legalistic coins means you can't obey to earn God's favor. Uh, and, th- and this, again, should be something that's really freeing and life-giving. You know why you can't obey to earn God's favor? Jesus already did that. He already did that. You don't have to. You can rest from that struggle, Hebrews tells us. You don't need to earn God's favor. You just want to abide in His love. But it does mean that our obedience, and again, I'm going to move fast here because uh, I want to, for the sake of time, it's supposed to be from the heart. In Deuteronomy, we're told that, that the people were to love the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength. When Jesus is asked what's the greatest commandment, it's, that's what He repeats. It's to be willing service. Um, the, in Exodus 25, as well as in 2 Corinthians, we're told that God loves a cheerful giver. It's to be willing and joyful obedience. It's to be total obedience. This is borne out in Deuteronomy that, that every, anyone who does not conform to the words of this law by doing them, like it's every single commandment that was expected to be kept. James 2.10, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has been guilty of it all. God demands total obedience and He demands constant obedience. Philippians 2.12, Therefore, my beloved... As you have always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. There's still to be this constant obedience. But again, Matthew 11, his commands are not burdensome. So we see that we abide in the Father's love by obedience. And that obedience is not optional. But there's this thing that keeps popping up over and over and over again about the people of God mixed in with these commandments of obeying God. And and what would the connection be? Well, let me explain it to you. And I think we see it in Ephesians chapter 3, 14 through 21. If it's if it's in the if it's in obedience that we abide in the love of Christ, it's with the people of Christ that we see the love of God. We abide by obedience, but we see the love of God through the people of God. In Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14-21, through 21, uh, Paul says, For this reason, this is a prayer, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth. The breadth and length and height and depth of what? 
of his love. And to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to the power at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Jesus Christ throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Why do Jesus and John and Peter and others continue to connect the people of God to the love of God, or really the people of God to obedience towards God? It's because in obedience we abide in God's love, and it's with the people of God that we see His love. This means that the church, it's to be a telescope of God's love. Why a telescope? Why not a microscope or a magnifying glass? Because microscopes and magnifying glasses, they make small things look big. Telescopes make big things look a little more closely to what they actually are. God's love, the, the, the height and length and depth and breadth of it, it's impossible to plumb on your own. How can you possibly begin to fathom it by seeing it at work in the lives of a bunch of people whom he loves. Who, who, he's, who he's using to love you. Who he's, as he's using you to love others. You cannot understand the love of God apart from obedience. And you'll never experience his joy apart from his obedience. But you, you can't understand the love of God apart from the church either. And I'm not just talking about showing up to services. I'm talking about a robust connection to the life of the church. And this goes two ways. Some of you probably aren't experiencing God's love and therefore God's joy because you're largely disconnected from the people of God. Like you might show up for a service and, and that's great and leave. But, but what about growth groups? What about, what about deep friendships? What about, you know, like, man, if I sit in the back, I can book it out of here before anybody talks to me. Like I'm talking about robust connections where, where you get to see what God is doing in, in other people's lives. Yes, it requires vulnerability and there's, there's danger in that. But you're going to rob yourself of seeing the joy of God if you just keep the church, by which I mean the people of God, at arm's bay or at arm's length. And some of you, some of you are robbing yourselves of seeing God's love because you're just not willing to show it to anybody else. Like, it, it takes both, right? Sometimes we see God's love as people love us well. And sometimes we see God's love as we love others well. And if you're sitting here thinking, man, I wish somebody would love me that well, well, we're going to start over. Turn with me, if you would, to John chapter 15. It's not just about being loved. It's about loving Sometimes the way we see God's love is by being the one whom He's loving on others through. And sometimes we see His love as others love on us. But apart from those kind of meaningful connections in the church, we're never going to see God's love. If you have kids, man, imagine the blessing they could be to an, old, an elderly couple in the church. 
And you're like, I, I don't have time for that. I got, I got school and I got all kinds of other things with kids and life is busy. And I know that's true. But, but what happens if that elderly, elderly couple becomes the reason that your kid loves Jesus? What if that's where they experience the love of Jesus in ways that you, you simply can't provide on your own? And, and by the way, we got to let that sink in. None of us can absolutely and perfectly show God's love to somebody else. None of us are omni-gifted. None of us are omni-competent. We need other people to show God's love in ways that we're just not built. I, I, I fully understand that what I'm asking is, is for a, in, in some ways, a radical transformation in the ways that we engage and relate to the church. I'm not asking the church, in fact, I don't think it's me, I think what Jesus is calling to is not to have the church be the whole of our lives, but to be the hub of our lives. The hub is the center of a wheel. And, and kind of everything goes out from there. If, if all of your life and all of your relationships and all of everything is the church, then it's the whole of your lives. That's not good. But, but when the church, by which I mean the people of God, are at the hub of our lives, then, then they can show us God's love. They can strengthen us when we're weak, encourage us when we're fearful, go with us to the places we need to go. We can recharge and go out to work and family and, and whatever it is that we're called to do. We have to put ourselves in positions to be loved on and, and to love on those around us. I'm not necessarily going to commend the movie, uh, though probably most of us know the line from Forrest Gump, stupid is as stupid does. There's a lot of truth to that, isn't there? Um, I've met some really, really smart, stupid people. <laughs> before. I've been a really smart, stupid person, or maybe I've been a really stupid, stupid person. I don't know, but you get the point, right? Stupid is as stupid does. And, and while it's not the scope of this sermon, I think one of the things we really see borne out in Scripture is that love is as love does. When God loves us, He sends His Son. When, God loves, when Christ loves us, He dies for us. In 1 Corinthians, where Paul speaks of these 15 facets of love, they're all verbs. They're all things that we do. Love is not described primarily in terms of how it feels, even though love does have feeling. Love is described by what it does. And so if we want to say we love God, we must say we love people. And if we love people, we must do what's loving for people. If if we say we love God, but we don't obey His commandments, then we're kidding ourselves somewhere. I, I fully understand that I might be asking us to reconsider how we relate to many things, to, to consider our schedules, to say, how can I live my life in this way? But I'm not just saying it because I, I want us to, you know, whatever. What I want us to understand is Jesus' words that He's telling us these things so that His joy might be in us and so that our joy might be full. Jesus is calling us to these things, to obedience, not to restrict our joy, to maximize it. 
to meaningful connect, relational connection in the church, to maximize our joy, to see and to plumb the depths of His love. So here's where I'm going to leave us. Here's the formula. Faith followed by obedience positions ourselves to experience God's love. Not just His, not just his good feelings, but His active blessing. Faith followed by obedience positions ourselves to experience God's love. And when we position ourselves for God's blessing through the people of God and obedience to God, what could possibly result but joy? Heavenly Father, we want to...